Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could be with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Good Friday, exploring the Gospel of John and the Psalm. Our loving and liberating guests this week are Father Jerry, who is the People's Priest, working at the intersection of church and society. Father Jerry seeks to embody radical solidarity through protest, praise, and community organizing in Houston, Texas and the esteemed Leilanda Lee, who is a former lay member of Executive Council representing Province 6 and attends St. Stephen's in Longmont, Colorado. She has done asset-based community development trainings and worked on racial reconciliation for many years. And last but not least, originally from Brazil, the Reverend Dr. Sam Desordi Leite has been working with liturgical and culturation and multicultural ministries in the Episcopal Church. His passion has been helping communities to identify their social and cultural identities and express them through worship and popular devotions. Welcome, friends. What do we need to keep in mind for Holy Week, specifically Good Friday this year? It's a, it's a great question, Shaniqua, and I've thought about it as I studied the readings for uh, today's discussion for Good Friday. And it occurs to me very strongly that we have to keep all of the um, stories and all of the lessons from Holy Week together as one unit, that you can't do Good Friday without also looking at Palm Sunday. You, you just can't do any of it as pieces. You have to do it as a totality. And so that would be my advice to anyone who is looking to preach about Good Friday, is you have to look at the totality of Holy Week, where Jesus has been with his disciples and where he's going. And that's sort of the way our lives are too, that it's a totality. You can't take a sliver of one's life and say, well, that's it. That's the story. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I think this is, is particularly challenging but also it will give us an, a new um, space for new opportunities um, like never before we are living in a pandemic uh, our generation and that will challenge us to to be creative with the liturgies that we know so well and have been doing for so many years um, it's it's um, it's an exciting opportunity because we can be creative and we can be more intentional in certain things that in the past we were so attached to the space or to the um, the liturgical text. Because now we can do from our homes, now we can do with our relatives. Um, and one of the things that I, I think we should keep in mind this year is also uh, if, if you are able what can be done outdoors? And I come from a Latin American country. I'm from Brazil. And several liturgies for Holy Week can be done outside, you know, with processions, especially beginning with the Palm Sunday. Uh, I know some churches in the past have chosen also to do that experience indoors. But 
um, why not to, to try this year doing more things outdoors? And for Holy Week, uh, for Good Friday, we, we could explore that with um, our church members. Um, aside of that, I need to say that is also exciting for um, non-ordained people. I don't know if you have observed, but often during Holy Week, the clergy are very particular about the liturgies and they're very involved. So my fellow colleagues take the opportunity and invite lay members of your community to be more engaged in planning this Holy Week because it's going to be different and it's going to be very uh, interesting to to hear from them what is really meaningful during this period of uh, pandemic. And, and don't do it by yourself, you know. Get other folks in the parish. And I have seen during the pandemic more and more lay people involved. Um, the Book of Common Prayer says the, the Good Friday liturgy can be done entirely, um, almost entirely, by non-ordained people. And what a great opportunity for people to explore that at home and adapt the liturgy for uh, their context. Jerry, what's important to keep in mind for Holy Week, specifically Good Friday this year? Well, I think it's important to remember that the sacred uh, is something that is expansive and that has many different forms. And um, we call this week in the church year the Holy Week because we consider it to be the most sacred time of year. But in reality, I think this crisis has taught us um, as it's taught the church in past history, that um, this life, this experience is holy, and how do we see God at work in the midst of it? Uh, when I think of Holy Week, particularly Good Friday, I tend to think of the, the reality that Christ took on this immense burden out of love for us. So how are we imitating that radical, expansive love in the world um, for those who are suffering around us. And um, so I think this week, or excuse me, this year uh, for Holy Week, we really have to expand and figure out what are the new ways that we are going to radically love our fellow human beings and other creatures too. Thank you. So uh, Sam, you talked a little bit about this already, but I'll kind of open this up to the group what liturgical suggestions do you have for Good Friday this year? I know sometimes we do like reverencing the cross or the solemn colics and biddings or reading of the passion narrative. What sort of suggestions do y'all have? I think one of the one of the great things in our church tradition is the variety of liturgies we have for Holy Week and particularly for Good Friday. Um, the Book of Common Prayer offers one option, which is the liturgy for Good Friday. And um, is a liturgy that you can adapt for your context. Aside of that, we, we also have liturgies like the Seven Words of the Cross, um, the Epitaphius that uh, some churches have been using. Um, and 
the way of the cross that some of us call the, the Via Crucis or uh, Via Dolorosa. And, and that one can be done every Friday during Lent. So when you are planning the liturgy for Good Friday, I think we need to keep in mind what fits best for your community, especially during um, this moment, on, moment of a pandemic we are living. Uh, be in dialogue and see what is uh, meaningful to, the, to them and what can be done um, with the community and what can you challenge people to do with their families. Um, I have seen more and more um, people having the opportunity to engage in prayer with their, um, their household which um, in the past was um, much more connected to the physical space of the church. So now we have the chance to, to have in each house uh, a, a person to be the one who calls for prayer. So you don't need the priest anymore to do that. You, you have people in, in the household inviting people for prayer. And what is important for us who are going to be doing and planning um, liturgy for Good Friday is also trying to identify what is um, what is the essential element for those who are going to come together to worship. And one of the things I remember from my um, uh, cultural context is some of us have particular traditions that we follow in in our lo local culture or um, was inherited by the family was inherited by the parish in that area so it, it's very important to take a look what's meaningful and what's relevant and keep that present because with the adaptations we're going to have to make we need to select what is um, essential for that particular community and what needs to go and with the pandemic we have the chance to kind of clean up uh, our traditions from some habits that are, are not helpful. Um, so we are learning to, to observe and find out what is essential in worship and liturgy. I, I'd like to um, add uh, a, a slightly different perspective. We are a um, suburban uh, congregation where I worship and we have largely worshiped by Zoom for um, about a year now. Uh, we don't have any in-person worship with congregants, although in the past three or four weeks, our clergy and our audiovisual team are now inside the uh, church nave uh, conducting the service. And we've been using uh, primarily a modified morning prayer but occasionally we also will use a modified um, Eucharistic service and consecrate some elements that people can come by the church in a two hour period and pick up to take home and participate. I think participation for me is key to looking at liturgy because we have so many lay people in the congregation. We have a few retired clergy also, and we are now drawing congregants from outside of our area, from outside of our state friends of friends who are worshiping with us. 
uh, who may, may or may not necessarily be churched. And so I like the idea of in the um, presentation of all the readings and the homily or sermon, that there also is an opportunity for response from the congregants, sort of um, a return to the old uh, Jewish tradition of Midrash. And we've been very successful in a year's time in preparing and training, teaching our congregants to type into the chat window for prayers of the people and frequently to respond to the um, homily. And I would like to see a lot more of that. And particularly perhaps um, it within the focus of becoming beloved community, uh, the church's um, racial justice uh, reconciliation initiative to look at uh, all the different participants in the Holy Week story from Palm Sunday all the way to Easter and have the congregants um, engage in a number of different questions about the participants. Um, if you had to trade or swap places with someone in the stories, who would you choose to swap, swap places with and why? What if you had to trade places with someone who um, you really can't relate to in the story? And then start really meditating on how you could relate to that person, how you could see perhaps in that person's perspective. I think that's an entree into the kinds of issues that our country has been facing for the past several years of trying to know who our neighbors are, to acknowledge that they're as human as we are, to acknowledge that they deserve all of the resources that we ourselves are gifted with and so forth. So that's my perspective right at the moment. I love that. I think that's beautiful and a really nice point on, I think we sometimes forget when we design liturgy or when we think about liturgy that um, this didn't fall out of the sky already pre-designed, right? That these liturgies, these rituals, these customs have been developed and nuanced over the centuries of the 2000 plus years that the church has been around. Um, and most of them developed in small communities that um, were a certain gesture or a certain idea or a certain um, day uh, or color or word meant something specific to that community. And over time, it kind of, something very normal and practical became something profound and sacred, right? Um, and, and sometimes I think we do ourselves a disservice by taking everything and casting it in gold or silver and putting it up on a shelf and making it like all special and everything. When in reality, Jesus never used the chalice at the, at the first Eucharist, he used a cup, um, you know? And um, so I think when we think about Good Friday this year, we need to think about ways that um, questions, we need to think about questions that help to provoke that imagination and that curiosity on how we pray the way of the cross. Um, one of the things I often remind people is that um, the crucifixion is happening every day, all day long in all parts of the world. Um, black and brown people in this country are regularly crucified through police brutality. Um, uh, or, uh, 
young kids who come from poor uh, economic backgrounds are oftentimes excluded from higher education um, in the school to prison pipeline uh, helps to reinforce a culture of violence that we live in. And so the crucifixion is happening daily. So I often bring up the question of who are we or uh, who among us is being crucified? Who is the Christ that's being crucified? And who among us is going to be the Simons of the world who help to lighten that load a little bit um, and, and liberate the people of God from that burden? Um, I sometimes tell people, you know, we need to learn to not be tourists of the world's crucifixion. So I think having creativity and curiosity about those questions and, and how the crucifixion is taking place today are, are essential when we talk about uh, how are we commemorating this sacred experience. Thank you, Jerry. Um, so th that kind of leads me into this next question, which is how um, you talked about Simon. So I was kind of saying, who are the Simons of, of the world? and um, yeah, let me just start there. Who are the Simons? Um, Jerry mentioned uh, this um, dimension of the recognizing the crucifixions that happen every day. And in the, the tradition of the church, we, we kind of liturgically identify two major days to to bring back this experience of suffering and um, recognition of um, how frail we are and how uh, unjust the society is. Um, so Ash Wednesday talks about this fragility and Good Friday is, is the day that we remember um, the crucifixion of, of Jesus. And like Jerry said, we see that happening every day in different um, groups, maybe racial, maybe um, gender, etc. And I was just while he was saying that, I was thinking uh, in the early church, um, especially the community in Jerusalem, these celebrations of um, Passion and Easter, they were all mixed up in the same. Um, celebrations was uh, until the, I think, of fourth century. Um, the liturgies would bring both suffering and redemption. And I wonder how can we bring those uh, uh, feelings back? Um, I come from Latin America and we often um, focus too much on the suffering. So I wonder how to create liturgies for Good Friday that also give us the sense of a hope in the call for justice. And um, I think it's, it's great that we may have the opportunity this year of giving to people the opportunity to design their own intercessions or prayers of the people. Um, and perhaps you're gonna hear things that are contemporary relevant that speak about the suffering and also creates this uh, opens this door for uh, the hope and toward, towards the experience of resurrection in life um, 
so that was something that um, I would invite people to to meditate and and and, and create a space, open their hearts for for this coming Good Friday. It's interesting what you just said, Sam, uh, because it it seems to me that sharing your Latin um, experience of tending to focus more on the suffering than the um, uh, joy or uh, the possibilities in the future. I think about uh, Christ and how we are called to imitate Christ, how we are called to be like Christ. And I think about the servant song, let me be your servant too, let me be um, you know, Christ to you. And I think about how so often um, in Western society, and I'm of Chinese descent and I'm first generation, my mother was born and raised in China and Cantonese is my first language, English is my second. So I, I have a definite um, other than American uh, background also. And I think about how when we talk about imitating Christ, we tend to focus on how we can be servant-like, how we can be humble, how we can do good, how we can help others. But how often do we think about Christ's suffering on the cross, about the slings and arrows of uh, being rebuked and rejected and still continuing on his journey of following the truth. Uh, my, my guess is that, and, and I don't mean to um, denigrate everyone, but my guess is that we do that a lot less often than looking at um, the shiny good stuff that we could aspire to. So let's shift and talk a little bit about the passion narrative in John. And um, I'm wondering how do like in, in you know in the story people deny Jesus? How do we deny Jesus? In what ways do we deny Jesus? Well, I think we deny Jesus um, the incarnate today when we deny people um, access to health care, to quality education that lifts people out of poverty. Um, when we deny people basic things like the recognition of their preferred pronouns, um, I think we have created a church and a society that seeks to make make a certain way of being that's um, uh, the preferred norm, whether that be well primarily being white um, and male and straight. But for people who are not uh, like uh, LGBT people and women and, and, and indigenous folks, um, it, cre it creates a denial of the reality of the incarnation that takes place in our bodies. Um, so to also relate to your question about um, uh, who are the Simons of the world, I think the Simons of the world are the people who insist on uh, honoring these identities, um, and not just for the sake of saying, "Oh, okay, we need this. We need to have a woman, right, in our committee, or we need to have a gay person, or an LGBT person, or Latino, or Indigenous person, um, or pe people with differing physical and mental abilities." Um, 
it's more than just tokenizing. It's honoring the reality of the Godhead made manifest in that person and the particular gifts that they have that they can help move our society and our church along. Um, I think so often we in the church, uh, we again reinforce the crucifixion of, crucifixion of Christ by um, by denying these beautiful gifts that people have and seeing them not as gifts but as liabilities to the church or to society and um, and easily just throwing them away. So the, uh, the Simons of the worlds are the people who do that, but also those that's a particular way in my mind that we deny uh, Christ in our current age. I, I would also say, we extend the question, the denial of Christ is also the denial of the, the good news of Christ. Um, as church, we often want to sugarcoat the good news and deliver this romantic idea of the movement of Jesus. And that's sometimes, quite often, it's represented on, on Hardwick in a very poetic way, in the way we sing, in the way we move, in the way we plan things. And the denial happens when we just keep repeating things without uh, intentionality. And it becomes beauty. Um, a, a liturgy can be beautiful and it can be touching, but if that's all, it doesn't engage in us on, on the conversations of discrimination, suffering, um, separation from our brothers and sisters who are suffering like Christ and the cross suffered, um, then the liturgy is not fully helping us to, to live the, the good news of Christ. And that's a denial. Um, that's what I, I see. Uh, I recall there is um, uh, an artist from Brazil, um, Claudio Pastro, uh, artist and theologian. And he says, beauty serves God and the devil. How do we want to use? So sometimes our liturgies can be beautiful and touching, but they don't really reflect the message that Jesus was preaching. And um, it's challenging sometimes. I had a new insight when I was reading the um, a gospel for Good Friday. And um, then I went back and looked at some other um, uh, gospels at, at the uh, Passion. And it struck me for the very first time what it means when Jesus was pierced in the side and both blood and water came out. And I thought of that as being a connection that we think of the blood of Christ as the cup of salvation. We think of it as the um, liquid of, of true eternal life. And we know that water is certainly, in terms of our um, literal bodies, is true physical life. You have to have water and you have to have blood 
in order to be alive and survive as a human being. And if you think about the water of our baptism with which we are washed, and you go back to the Maundy Thursday uh, liturgy and the, and the readings from Maundy Thursday, which talk about even though the disciples came into the Last Supper and said that they were clean, Jesus said, I have to wash your feet because your feet are not clean. The idea of the baptismal waters washing the sin from us, washing us to be a fresh slate. I think that that, when you connect it to the resurrection, I think that's where the hope is. That's the other side of the suffering and the pain and the sacrifice. That yes, there is sacrifice. Yes, there is pain. But sacrifice often means that you're sacrificing for someone else. You're sacrificing to benefit someone else. And yet there's sadness in it. My father, um, who never knew the word volunteer, but did all sorts of translation services, immigration services, going to the hospital and doctors with people because they didn't speak English. When he passed, my mother asked me to write a message on his uh, crypt, um, his crematorium crypt. And what I wrote after thinking about it for a long time was duty and sacrifice beyond reproach. And those are the words there. But in my heart, when I think about it, it's both joyful in terms of what it brought in terms of life to the rest of the family, but it's also terribly, terribly sad because sacrifice always means that someone has given up something that benefits someone else like me. Hmm. Thank you, Leilanda. That, <clears throat> that's a powerful reflection. Our Lakota word for I love you is also talks about like, um, I will endure for you or I will suffer for you is, is the translation kind of how, how it comes across. I was wondering what parallels do you see between um, the passion narrative and today. And what I can't, what came up for me, uh, like, I don't know how many people watched the video of George Floyd's murder, but I know it came up on my feed that morning. And that was kind of where I went to was the crucifixion and the parallel between, you know, Jesus was killed by government folks and George Floyd was killed by police officers who work for the government or government folks. and. Um, he, you know, George Floyd called out to his mother, Jesus called out to his mother, there's all these connections. And um, I just, I guess that was really where I, where I was thought, but I wonder what other parallels do folks see in that, in that passion narrative? I would add to that, um, that I had the, sa the same thought when I saw, uh, well, I didn't watch the whole video because I was, nauseated looking at it um it's terrible but one of the interesting things i think about the crucifixion is um jesus said i can't breathe you know we talk a lot about being saved by the blood of jesus but in reality we should talk a lot about uh talk more about um the breath of jesus the uh, how we're saved by the fact that he gave up his last breath for us so when I think of George Floyd or Eric Garner, when they, their last words were, I can't breathe, um, it's, it just, it resonates so much because of the fact that 
Christ chose to give up his last breath, and George Floyd and Eric Garner's breath was last breath was taken out of them. It was choked out of them. Um, and so, to me, there's a Good Friday is about recognizing that the Holy Spirit, um, the Numa uh, that resides in all of us, um, is called to be given away. But we live in a world where the unholy spirit, which forcefully takes away our breath, um, is made manifest. And so, um, so I, I, I don't know if that, that, that resonates with anybody, but that, that came to mind. Um, and I think about that often when I think of the crucifixion. Um, what was your question again, Shaniqua? <laughs> Forgot. Just what parallels do you see between the passion narrative and today? And you've, you've named some. Yeah, okay. Somebody else can talk. <laughs> um, one thing I have, I have um, observed in this past year, again, because of the pandemic, um, is the suffering of our people, and especially those who are non-white and i speak that from the experience of my in my neighborhood and in my church community um, where we have um, the neighborhood where i live is very diverse and a few years ago was majorly um, uh, latin american and since the summer of last year this mm. neighborhood became the COVID spot, the hotspot for COVID in, in the city. And every time somebody said, we are experiencing the pandemic um, in so many ways, and we are on this together. I keep saying, we are on this together, but we're experiencing different ways. Some folks are that are heavier experience than others. And that, that, that's where I see the crucifixion. Um, then my second question for people would, would be, so how did you do for, um, for cooking or for going out to you know, go shopping? And they would say, well, uh, delivery from here, from there. And I would ask my Latino congregation and they would say, we never did actually uh, quarantine. We were working through the entire pandemic. So we were the ones cooking and we were the ones doing the delivery. And I had no option because I have, you know, small children. And uh, if, if one of us gets sick, one of the adults gets sick, how are we going to pay the rent and how are we going to, you know, um, bring food to our family. So this past year, I saw so many crucified um, cooking and delivering and being mm. sick and losing beloved ones. So I, th I think whatever liturgy we create for Good Friday, it needs to have a space to name um, all these losses. Um, we, aside of losing our beloved ones, I, I saw people losing jobs. I saw people losing their sick 
place and you know they they lost their jobs they didn't have mm. how to pay the rent and now what um many many people don't have documenta documentation so they don't have access to um health insurance and and some of our charts try to to commit to those uh, injustices and have been responding um, the way they can and there are signs of hope but i think our, our liturgies mm -hmm. on good friday need to to speak about those crucified ones i'd like to build on that sam i think that's a great point about who are the crucified ones i think about the passion play that's often performed in church with different speakers and the congregation is invited to um, say the words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Yet, do we ever, other than in occasional Christian formation classes, invite the congregation to say, um, empathize with them, empathize with them, suffer with them, carry their load, walk in their shoes. Do we ever say that? And my guess is that it's, um, if we say it, it's on a very intellectual, very brainiac, think about it, talk about it basis, as compared to really walking with people. I think that the reason the words in Micah 6, 8 are about walk humbly with our Lord is that it's the walking with that's important. Mm. It's the accompaniment yes. that is important and not the being up at the front at a pulpit elevated above others saying follow mm -hmm. jesus it's it's empty words if that's all it is amen yes preacher <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful thank you so much i'm always curious or what strikes me always is the the bystanders and how they um the role that they played in things and um, how do we, how can we be better bystanders as we um, observe the world around us, both as bystanders as Christians and just bystanders as human beings in the world? Okay. Um, well, I think we be, we're better bystanders by recognizing that we're on the side, right? Um, that we're, um, and sometimes a good, bystander is one who's not on the side, who's actually engaged in everything. So something that uh, Leilanda said that made me think was um, about the, the part of the narrative where we talk about crucify him, crucify him, and how we act that out in the, in the recitation of that gospel. One of the things that bring, comes up with that in my mind is, you know, we talked about who are the crucified and who are the Simons of the world, but also who, who is the one that's condemning, right? Like, how are we condemning uh, Christ today? Um, and, and how are we playing into those other roles? Uh, because it seems to me that one of the interesting things about the gospel narrative of the passion is that all of these characters seem to represent archetypes of different human awarenesses about um, how we relate to other people. Um, 
And sometimes the bystander is the bystander because they're afraid to be actively engaged in the, in the work of helping Christ carry the cross or whatever that might be. Um, and uh, so, I'm, I'm, so I'm just curious and I'm thinking as people are preparing for Good Friday preaching of asking that question of what character in this story are we in our day-to-day -day life? And how can we transition out of that space into being somebody that interrupts the crucifixion? Um, and I think we interrupted by what you said, Lilanda, by, um, by journeying with, by being with. Um, the gospel always happens with and, and among the people of God, particularly the poor um, and oppressed. And... Um, yeah, so anyway, those are just some thoughts I had that came up from what you said. So I'm going to throw the mic now to you. <laughs> oh, golly. I, I was um, thinking about a pith, somewhat pithy statement that I use all the time, but I really mean it and live by it. And that is the idea that what you think about me is none of my business. And I think that in Western culture, we are so um, subsumed, we are so overcome, overwhelmed by the idea of what other people think of us, by our reputation, our status, um, whether we fit into the collective or not, even if we don't acknowledge that it's a collective. Uh, and, and it seems to me that the way that we can get past a lot of these ills in terms of being just a bystander is if we stop thinking about what other, what other people might think about us, then we might be able to cross the barrier from thought into action, from regret into satisfaction that we took some action. I think about things like the relationship of a parent to a child and how many parents have been willing, have willingly, stepped in front of danger in order to save and protect their child or their spouse or partner or someone else that they believe is more vulnerable and deserving of help, like perhaps um, an elder in a wheelchair, um, not to promote stereotypes. But how do we get beyond that to think in terms of helping people who are um, our peers, who we perceive as our peers? I, I hate to look at the military as an example, and yet the training and the indoctrination of military members all over the world is that they do have a unified sense of thought. And the, the most important thing I see is that their purpose is hammered into them. And I'm wondering how can we, as preachers of the gospel, really hone in on and promote not just in the parables where Jesus is being the good shepherd, but in all the other stories, where is God working for the kingdom in this story? I find the word bystander uh, a very interesting word in, in that story. Um, it's intriguing because I try to put myself in the place of those who are 
seeing that, seeing what's happening. And, and then I start thinking the reasons why they didn't do anything. Um, then occurs to me that we are often bystanders in situations that we see nowadays. And I remember a movie I watched a few years ago uh, where the, the main character um, had um, um, sighted disability and thanks to some type of tri- uh, treatment, um, he has the, the capacity of the ability of sight again. And on his first days going outside, he was walking with a friend and then he stops and says, oh my God. And, and the friend says, what? And, and he points to a homeless person sleeping under um, uh, in a corner, a very cold corner. And, and he said uh, something like, I have heard about people homeless, but I have never understood in, in, until I saw. And that that make, makes me think of liturgical texts where Jesus asked the questions, do you see my suffering? And then I think about the suffering we see nowadays. And then I, I can relate to bystanders. How many times during my week I pass by homeless people and I could make a different choice of just being bystander or taking an action and stopping and asking and wondering and walking with. So I do find the word bystander very intriguing on that story of in Good Friday. And I, I often see myself uh, asking the question, when I see somebody in suffering, what mm. part can I take in this story? So bystander, challenged, um, code to be transformative. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm going to shift us into the Psalm just because uh, we don't have a lot of time. And I want to talk about one of them we're reading in. One of the things that I noticed, uh, over this past, like as we were reflecting on Ash Wednesday and um, the readings for Palm Sunday and Good Friday, all the things, this year I'm reading them a lot differently, or at least I'm noticing the connections over this past year that that just seem to like shoot out. And with the Psalm, as I read it, it was like my heart within my breast is melting wax. And I kind of think about how many times my heart has melted. Uh, what, What stands out for you in the Psalm? The um, verse uh, 7, which says, All who see me laugh me to scorn. They curl their lips and wag their heads. And um, that's what we were just talking about, uh, that I was particularly talking about, that when we focus on what other people think of what we are saying and doing, we lose track of the purpose of our saying and doing. Mm. And we get... Um, distracted by our ego. 
one of the things on Psalm 22 um, that caught my attention is the deep connection between the psalmist and and God. Mm-hmm. Um, all this story back and forth is about how that person is being treated by others and how much injustice has been imposed to that person. And and in that space of uh, suffering and being corned and, and being um, oppressed by injustice, that person goes straight to whom is is where the trust abides, which is, is God. And made me think of um, Gregor of Nyssa, who says, the only thing that really matters is to be friends with God or the friendship with God. Hmm. And that psalm represents um, a lot about that friendship. Um, because you only share that dip with someone you trust, with someone you're close friends with. And it's like a balsam, um, a balm for me every time that um, psalm comes up on, uh, on the liturgy for Good Friday. Because it shows the strong connection between um, God as as a mother or a father and and our, our desire for being under the wings of God um, is so comforting. I'm reminded of the, uh, the first line always strikes me, even though I hear it all the time. It's one of those seven last words of Jesus, of uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I think is always striking to me because people from targeted communities often um, in their in their vocalizations or in their lived realities uh, profess that 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 statement of why have you forsaken me? There's this idea that God has abandoned um, us, and um, I think about that and Jesus saying that on the cross and that. Um, the good thief um, is the one who um, who said, who, who spoke up for Jesus and defended him and said to the other person on the other cross um, that he doesn't deserve this. We're getting our just due, but he doesn't deserve this. He, you know, he lived a great life. Um, and Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in the, in the kingdom. Um, and... Uh, Victor Frankl, uh, the psychologist uh, who wrote uh, Man's Search for Meeting, talked about his experience in Auschwitz um, and how what held him on in, in his studies of the people he was with in the camp and what helped other people hold on was these little acts of words or gestures or behaviors that people did that reminded folks of the fact that there's something um, there's something bigger that's connecting everybody together, um, and it, it gets back to the what he believed was the basic uh, need of all human beings, which is that we we always need and want to belong. 
Um, so I think as uh, preachers of the gospel and as uh, people of faith, um, I think it's often our job to go to those places, um, whether that's in ourselves or in the people that we serve, um, who are saying that question, who believe deeply that God has forsaken them and and be that kindness, that compassion, that that smile, that word, um, that body that steps in the way and says, um, you, uh, you're not forsaken, you're not forgotten, you belong to us um, and we belong to you and we can get to this together. Um, I think that's how um, the kingdom of God is made manifest in our world. Um, that's how the, the bread of the Eucharistic table is made plenty for other people. It has to first be broken and given away. Um, so that's what came to mind when I read the psalm. The words in the psalm uh, in verse 23 say, but when they cry to him, he hears them. Both Sam and Jerry have talked about reaching out to the people who are hidden from our sight or we or who we don't see because of our filters and during this pandemic as we do church um, and for our church do it primarily online who is it that we are not seeing among our own flock who is it who's suffering we're not seeing, we're not hearing about? Uh, who can they cry to? How do we maintain those connections, much less connections with people that we don't know, whether it's the quote unquote, the homeless or the poor um, or whatever the category is? How, how do we stay attuned to the fact that people do have loss and do suffer loss and uh, do suffer bitterly. I, I think that in Western culture, we often move from thought, um, letting something leave our lips to immediately uh, go to action. But in between thought and action, there's this whole big place called presence. And I think mm. that perhaps we as followers of Jesus can be about presence and can be about not just creating the space for people to be present and to participate, but also um, holding that space, that perhaps our um, jobs as um, leadership, whether we're clergy or lay, is that our job is to hold the space once it's been created, has been identified that we protect that space for everyone to come in. Thank you. So with the little bit of time we have left, I'm just going to go around and ask you um, what any advice you have for preaching for Good Friday this year. Speaking to online audiences, or congregations, congregants, and visitors. I would say if there was something tangible that we could do at home, 
I'm um, holding, if this is a little Indian brass um, object, and there's a name for it whose name I cannot remember right now, but you can see it's shaped like a cross and it grips really well in the hand. And I've been holding it and um, caressing it and, and palming it the entire time we've been doing this podcast. And I think that if we did something like that with the cross, whether it was a wooden cross or a metal cross, uh, that it's a reminder, not just of hearing the words through our ears and in our intellect, but also feeling something that connects us to the words that are being said. Um, I would recommend finding some sort of way for people in their homes to be able to do something physical that reminds them of being connected to everyone else. I actually share um, the same uh, thoughts that Leland has recommended. I think the Easter Triton speaks so much about the physical body, the human body, um, restoring us back to the initial desire that God have created us to be. And Good Friday in particular has this characteristic of hurting the body. And um, as we know, physical pain can create um, profound marks in our lives. And if you are, if you have the opportunity to preach about this experience of um, cruci those crucifieds in our society, perhaps you can also recommend to, to those who are at home to, to touch um, their hands and think about the wounds uh, of Christ and cross. Um, this image, uh, image was uh, used more than once and for those who are Franciscans and follow the Franciscan charisma, St. Francis itself um, talks about the experience of the, the wounds and the hands. Um, so bring that to your preaching. Um, keep in mind the, the importance of the body and um, being engaged to contemporary topics that we are living these days. Oh, and if I may recommend, um, for liturgical purposes, uh, keep in mind it's a great opportunity to use the recommendation of the General Convention on the expensive and inclusive language for your liturgies. Um, so see what is necessary to adapt. Let's take the opportunity that this year is creating the space for adaptation and creativity. So let's make um, a, a, a very rich liturgy that speaks to our people. I'm reminded of the words of the late, great uh, Bishop Barbara Harris, who said that we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Um, and when I think about that and Good Friday and Holy Week in general, what I what I see is Jesus and the apostles and, and all the characters in there 
they have their body in the mix. They're, you know, they're, they're throwing themselves into the story, into the narrative. Um, and I would recommend that people remember that, uh, that um, our job as disciples is to get our body into the story. Um, just like Jesus allowed his body to get so deeply into the story that it ended at the cross on Good Friday, but that's not where the story ends. We always know that the story always ends in glory, which is Easter Sunday. And for some people in this world, Good Friday and Easter Sunday can happen in the same day. Uh, and so for us, we need to get our bodies into the story. So as you're preparing for Holy Week and you're designing your liturgies, get some, get some of your body into your preaching. Um, and talked about how your lived experience, which is very real and very sacred, just as sacred as the lived experience in the scriptures, um, how, how that relates to the church today and how that can extend the gospel uh, a little bit further. Um, and uh, so just remembering that, that we, we may live in a Good Friday world, but our story always ends in glory. Uh, and we always want to help remind people of that horizon point. Um, but also get your body into the mix and, and you'll more deeply know the realities of our beautiful uh, Christian faith. Thank you so much, everybody, for being willing to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's great to hear from you all. Thank you for inviting us. What a great that group you've gathered. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests. Jerry, Leylanda, and Sam. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Phoebe. If you've heard something that caught your ear today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.